0: Hey guys, and welcome back to the Brown Girl White Coat Podcast. My name is Sai, like a sigh of relief, and it's just me for today. So I wanted to say thank you so, so much for all the support for my three new co-hosts. That episode went over really well, and everyone's getting to know all of the co-hosts pretty well now, and I'm really excited for where this podcast is going to go. So this week's episode is just little old me, and I am interviewing Dr. Kristen Smith, who is a emergency medicine resident so she currently works in philadelphia and before med school she was a researcher working on projects that relate to healthcare disparities and healthcare provider cultural and linguistic competency so in her free time she's just you know an average gal and she likes to go hang out with her family and her friends and going on beach trips and traveling so she is just such a delight to talk to i'm so excited to have sat down with her and now she's kind of like you know a little mentor to me and i'm just so happy to kind of have had this chance to sit down with her so in this episode we talk a little bit about professionalism and advocacy and how med students or any healthcare students really can engage in advocacy work as well as remaining professional and what professionalism really means in this field Um, so she's the best happy listening and i hope you guys are having a great sunday or whatever day you're listening to this on and before we kind of get into it make sure you go ahead and follow my personal instagram at cyber s-a-i-e-b-e-a-r and the podcast instagram to stay in the know about all of our recent upcoming episodes and kind of little quotes from the episodes so, if you guys are interested, it's at Brown Girl White Coat Pod. And next week's episode is going to be Aaliyah. And the week after that will be Avi. And the week after that will be Alana. And I've seen the lineup for who is going to be coming on the podcast and what the topics are. And they sound so, so interesting. So, it really just reaffirms this decision to have a couple more people on the podcast. I'm so excited that everyone's kind of branching out and doing a few different things that I personally wouldn't be able to bring to this platform by myself. So, so let's get into this episode. I hope you guys have a great Sunday. Hey guys, let's welcome Dr. Kristen Smith to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm super excited to talk to you more about emergency medicine, about your work in cultural competency and healthcare advocacy. Um, but let's get into our segment first. I call this Setting the Record Straight. <laughs> so we can get to know you a little bit more and get to know your opinions a little bit more. Awesome. So the way this works is I give you three statements and you can say if they're true or false in your opinion. You ready? I am ready. Okay. So the first one: I felt a calling to emergency medicine. True. Very true.
1: I think most times when you find your specialty, you kind of know. You get this feeling um, when you're on your audition rotations. It kind of different specialties call you for different reasons. So very true.
0: Yeah. So a follow-up question. Did you feel callings to other specialties?
1: So I actually entered medical school thinking I was going to be a family medicine physician. Um, I think part of that is just because, or a pediatrician, I feel like mm-hmm. those were the two specialties I was most familiar with at the time. Um, And for quite some time, I was really like gung-ho family medicine. And it wasn't until my third year when I had a short rotation at a small rural ER where I was like, oh, wow, I didn't even know about emergency medicine. I didn't know all of the um, variety that you get to see, all of the procedures you get to do. I really had no clue about emergency medicine. And it really uh, made me look more into the specialty. Um, And then it was early, obviously early in my fourth year that I like doubled down on that decision and applied to emergency medicine residency.
0: So, Okay. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yes. Okay. So number two, um, physicians should be engaged in politics and advocacy. I
1: definitely agree with this. Very true. I think that as a physician, we all have a responsibility to try to improve society. And part of that is to be involved in politics and advocacy work. Um, Physicians are still maybe not as much as uh, kind of uh, the olden days of medicine, but um, physicians are still pretty highly regarded in terms of um, just professional acumen, if you will. And, um, a lot of times having a physician's voice does lead, uh, lead credence to a movement. So we really should be taking on a lot of these social justice issues and advocating to make our environments for our patients healthier
0: and for ourselves and our own families. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so the last one, the COVID-19 pandemic has made me question my decision to practice emergency medicine.
1: True. Unfortunately, very true. I think um, no one was expecting a global pandemic. We saw this with the Spanish flu pandemic, uh, but obviously none of us were alive at that time. It has been very mentally and physically taxing to practice during this time. I do believe that this that practicing during this global pandemic will make you a stronger physician. However, it is definitely been difficult for many reasons, wearing a mask daily to work, um, having that enhanced concern for just your own personal protection when you are performing certain procedures on patients, such as intubations, or if you're spending a, a, extended period of time in the room with the patient um, just to get additional history or if um, you need to put in an IV line or access a central line whatever that may be obviously the more close contact that you have with someone with likely who has COVID um, the more you are putting yourself at risk, if you will, of contracting the disease. But luckily at my residency program, we have had plenty of proper PPE, um, which I am super grateful for. So I actually feel pretty safe on every shift.
0: That's really good to hear. Mm -hmm. I know that it's probably extremely difficult for you as residents being on the front lines of this, but Also for medical students where we just don't know our place and a lot of us don't have adequate PPE because we're kind of bottom on the totem pole. So, you know, the the most essential of healthcare workers are are our priority there. But I totally understand. It's been a a crazy time. Yeah. Yeah. It's been
1: uh, unprecedented.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's what everyone Right. Says. Right. That's what everyone says, you know. <laughs> okay. So let's get to know a little bit more about you. Can you tell us about yourself and what brought you to medicine and then more specifically emergency medicine?
1: Yeah, of course. So. Well, um, currently, I am a fourth-year emergency medicine resident in Philadelphia. I can't believe I'm in my fourth year already. Uh, it really does go quick when people say that. You're like, oh, my gosh, it does not, but it really does go quick. I'm sure you uh, feel that with um, in your third year of medical school. I know there was times when you were studying for uh, Step 1 or the comics that you were like, oh, my goodness, this will never end, so it doesn't. Sure. So I went to, I'm a DO, I graduated from the Rowan University School of Osteopathic Medicine in South Jersey. Um, I was also a non-traditional medical student uh, because I did enter medical school a little bit later in life, Um, and I'm originally from Georgia, but most of all, well, all of my Education has been in the North or in the Northeast. So I think that does kind of play a small role into how I just communicate and different things like that. Um, My journey into medicine was somewhat unique. I got this idea that I wanted to be a physician pretty early on. Um, I did not grow up with parents who were physicians uh, by any means. I really didn't. have a lot of exposure until, uh, except when I was pretty young, I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis and I had a complete colectomy at five years old. Um, I think this kind of initial exposure made me have this idea of like, oh, doctors are really cool and they fix people and they help you feel better when you're sick. So that was kind of what I had at a young age. And then as I went uh, through middle school and high school, I always had this interest in like the life sciences and biology classes and learning about the human body. So I think that all kind of culminated into this decision for me to pursue a career as a physician. And then I was a pre-med at my undergraduate at Case Western Reserve University. Um, But I really did have a little difficulty with the pre-medical coursework. I think that oftentimes students are not given enough resources on where to go if they need help with studying or figuring out how can they improve their scores in certain fields. I think a lot of times there is this notion that as a pre-med, you know, you're already smart. You shouldn't need any help. And if you do need help, well, then this is not the path for you. Um, and that's very much kind of how I felt uh, going through undergrad. Um, and I did take the MCAT, like, on cycle. I think you take it during junior year or beginning of your senior year. And I didn't do that well. Um, so I knew I needed to improve my record before applying to medical school. So I actually took quite a bit of time off. Um, not all of that was doing post baccalaureate abor- uh, post-bac um, courses, but uh, I took several years off, but two of those years, I did do post back coursework while I was working full-time at a research position. I retook took the MCAT, um, and I did do, obviously, much better, and it allowed me to gain acceptance into medical school. Yeah,
0: that's amazing. What I what I hear from a lot of people I talk to is that, you know, their pre-med counselor either doesn't really help them or even worse, they tell them that their grades are just not good enough to get into med school and then right. that's where they leave it. So, I right. love your story that it's, you know, a story about finding your own resources and then and then eventually getting into med school and living the dream. So <laughs> for
1: real, I mean, for most uh, for any of your listeners who are pre-med or going through this path or have an interest in going back to school, please do it. Because I think that non-traditional students bring such a different perspective to the field of medicine. And you should really never let anyone tell you what you can and cannot do, what you are or are not capable of. And um, I just think your success is that much sweeter when you know you've been at a position where um, multiple people have told you that you can't do something, but you end up doing it. So definitely, definitely do not let anyone tell you that a career in medicine is not for you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So when you talk about being a researcher during your mm-hmm. uh, gap years, is this when you first got involved in tackling the issue of healthcare inequality?
1: It was. It really was. I think I kind of had this, I knew that health disparities existed, but I didn't think I knew a, a name for it. Um, just looking at um, different issues within my own family and things like that. So I I knew that there were these disparities out there but I I definitely couldn't have spouted off some type of definition if you will mm-hmm. um but it was really kind of um during my time as a postdoc that I started I did uh, acquire a research position and this particular physician um was working on different health disparities reduction um, projects And so one of the largest projects that we worked on was actually creating a valid and reliable tool to assess healthcare providers' level of cultural and linguistic competence. And I think I should probably just kind of explain that to the listeners, because I think a lot of terms are thrown out there. Health equity, health inequities, social determinants of health, and a lot of times hear all these things and they're very closely related but they're not all the same thing um so we know that health disparities exist right so that's just basically the difference in rates of breast cancer amongst black women latinx women and um white women right that you uh in general um minorities have a higher burden of disease, really if you look at any disease, um, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and how does that, we then kind of look at how does that impact your life with uh, morbidity and mortality data differences, and then obviously trying to develop interventions for how can we decrease that disparity, right? So I think a lot of um, the talk right now are kind of just with the social justice movement is uncovering these disparities and kind of um, just talking about them again uh, on a national level. But really, we need to move the conversation towards what can we do to reduce these disparities? Um, We've known about healthcare disparities. It's been well documented in the literature for a long time. Um, The Institute of Medicine's 2002 report uh, entitled Unequal Treatment um, documented many of these disparities back in 2002, and they were documented before that, but that was kind of the largest um, government-produced report that a lot of people kind of within this realm do at least uh, know about or have read at some point.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and there are many studies out there that kind of are looking at interventions for reducing disparities. And there are a few studies out there that show that part of the idea um, to be able to reduce disparities is actually to implement cultural and linguistic competency trainings. So there was an there's many, there's a few articles, but um, one of the articles that I really like was a systematic review uh, published by uh, Lie et al in the Journal of the General Internal Medicine back in March of 2011, that showed that cultural competency trainings, again, when done right and implemented correctly, can improve patient outcomes, right? So we're having this idea that there are disparities, how can we improve them? Well, we can train providers to practice in a more culturally and linguistically sensitive way, and that can actually improve patient outcomes. I think that was really groundbreaking. Um, so, just like a general definition, cultural competency can be thought of on the organizational or individual level. A lot of the work that I was doing at the time and research was more on the, well, it was both, but more on the, um, providers level, uh, where it's a set of attitudes, skills, and behaviors that enable healthcare professionals to effectively communicate cross-culturally. And linguistic competency is the ability to communicate with diverse populations, whether that be populations whose first language is not English, or populations who have hearing um, difficulties or deficits, and just being aware of these things and figuring how to best um, relate to your patients.
0: That's amazing. So was a lot of your research interventional or was it to kind of gather data um, and then present and raise awareness for the issues?
1: So a lot of our research was more interventional. Well, a lot of our research was more assessment-based. So what is out there to actually assess your level of cultural and linguistic competence because if you are not able to assess something then you're not really able to assess whether an intervention works or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really what our research focused on We did do some things in the community in terms of trying to just educate uh, different community members on different disease states. I, I don't know I really loved that position because it really uh, was enabled me to get a really Kind of depth of uh, experience in different topics. We also did a, a quite a few trainings for researchers uh, to enable them to feel more comfortable with cross cultural situations, um, because we know that getting minorities to participate in research can be difficult. Um, obviously, the biggest example of kind of um, unethical treatment of minorities. Uh, having to do with research is the tuskegee experiment but actually there are many many more um, instances there's a great book called uh, medical apartheid um, by a writer her last name is washington that is really um, good and kind of gives a great documentation of all kind of the unethical wrongdoings if you will that have been done to uh, participants Um, participating in research so a lot of times when researchers go out just to do obviously pre-COVID but when they go out to get survey data or do different health health assessments they're often met with a lot of resistance because community members just don't trust these people and there's um, great reason as to why that is Um, but trying to we did a lot of trainings on helping researchers to figure out how to address those issues and work within the participants community and and figure out how can you um, garner community engagement.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I I love that because I'm super passionate about, you know, cultural competency as well as linguistic competency about like in the workplace, Mm -hmm. um, things like microaggressions that lead to Patients and other providers feeling like, "Ooh, this is a hostile environment." Right. Um. And I've seen that at a local county hospital, Mm -hmm. um, here, just from using a translator to every for every interaction. Like that makes a huge difference for your your patients. So it does. I love the work that you're doing. That's, I think, that's really critical right now, especially to be involved in. I definitely agree. Yeah. So in terms of EM, um, does it lend itself to this sort of advocacy work? Would you say that maybe in EM you're more likely to get a glimpse of the social determinants of health and that makes you more passionate about advocacy work? Or where does um, EM kind of play into your passions there? So
1: I think EM really does put you as a position in a unique position to kind of see how all of these social determinants of health affect a patient's um health really um so social determinants of health are where you live work and play right so everything that's done outside of the hospital affects what you're coming into the hospital with Um, oftentimes uh so you know you may get a haste which is our overhead um announcement system that tells you that a 55-year-old male is coming in short of breath, um, and you kind of, so you get that haste, you start to set up the room, and you're kind of thinking of different differentials in your head before the patient gets there, pneumothorax, pneumonia, CHF exacerbation, all these different things, and then when the patient comes in, they're Uh, clearly working, you put them on the monitor, you find out that their blood pressure is 250 over 120. So super high, right? Mm -hmm. Much more than 120 over 80. Um, And you start your BiPAP, you may start nitro drip, just all your interventions for um, uh, hypertensive emergency, if you will. Um, And then after the patient is more settled, you get their blood pressure down, they're feeling a bit better. You start to talk to them, and you—they're uh, telling you that you know they've been out of their antihypertensives for several months, and you know a lot of times we just write this off as non-compliant. But if you really delve more into it, it's like, well, why didn't you get your medications? And a lot of times, patients will tell you either they weren't able to get to the pharmacy, right? They had some issue with transportation. Um, especially now during COVID, uh, patients are having difficulty getting into their primary care physician for routine follow-ups. And um, sometimes there are limits on how many refills you can get. So
0: Mm -hmm. maybe you haven't
1: seen your PCP in a while, or maybe you just didn't have the money for the medication, right? And then having your blood pressure uncontrolled for so long can uh, lead you to have all these problems and to come in in extremis and I think it's just, it's really something that we as emergency physicians see quite often. And you see really how a patient's social environment and just environment in general really impacts their ability to leave, uh,
0: live their healthiest life. Yeah, Absolutely. And I think that's one of the reasons that I just love EM so much because you're dealing with an acute problem, but you also see the interactions of so many other things that you could intervene if you wanted to, and you have that ability to see them at possibly their worst and counsel and intervene in any way that's necessary. So You really do. I
1: I think – I love EM, obviously, but um, I think it really is – such a privilege to really care for patients in their, often their highest time of need, sometimes on their worst days, so.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we talk about cultural competency work, and we know that it's still pretty lacking right now mm-hmm. in the field of medicine. Um, what kind of struggles have you faced as a woman of color and a black woman in medicine, but also specifically in EM? Because I know that you know certain things like orthopedic surgery are well mm-hmm. known for not having female representation, not having people of color represented in the specialty. Um, so I'm kind of wondering about, is that the same for EM? Or how did you feel particularly as a resident going through the program?
1: Right. Well, I think, unfortunately, in a field where only 5% of physicians are Black or African-American and half of that, so 2.5% are Black females, I think you're unfortunately bound to face many different barriers um, just because of a lack of representation. Um, I do think I've faced many different unique challenges, um, but I do think in general, medicine as a whole has been fairly, I, I guess I've definitely heard from other friends who have had more instances of feeling like they have been outcasts within a profession um, than maybe I have, but I do have quite a few instances myself. Um, I remember there was one time in medical school, uh, actually my fourth year. So I was doing all of my emergency medicine audition rotations because obviously pre-COVID, I was like the standard. Um, And I was uh, rotating at a ER, fairly large ER, in a city, I won't say what city, but in a city, Mm -hmm. and I had on my scrubs and my short white coat, pretty much the general medical student um, typical uniform, if you will. So I was about to go into a patient's room and I hear someone say, stop, where are you going? And I'm like, okay, I I am someone who's a bit clueless. So I kind of stood there like a deer in headlights and I'm like, okay, what's going on? And then um, I turn around and I see a uh, white female nurse who's speaking to me and she's yelling at this point. She's like, where have you been? Where have you been? And I'm like, "Uh, excuse me? And she's like, the patient has been waiting for 30 minutes to go to CT scan. Where have you been? Why didn't you transport this patient? Oh so my then God. it all cl- clicks in my head, right? That, okay, this nurse thinks I'm a patient transporter. And that is a little bit awkward, right? Also, the way she was addressing me is just no way that you should address anyone, no matter what their role, right? Um, and then... So I'm standing there confused and I'm like, well, I'm the medical student. And then immediately she starts to stammer and she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, usually the patient transporters, they wear that particular scrub color. And she's like giving all these explanations that really don't make any sense because all of the medical students were wearing the same scrub color, if you will. And then actually to make it even more awkward, a few people had witnessed this and were kind of looking on and then one of the other nurses, he stepped in, um, he was a white male, he stepped in and he was like, Oh, she didn't mean anything by it. You know, I think, you know, you may look like someone else. And it was a very awkward situation. And I think, obviously, that kind of uncovered a lot of their biases, right? I think a lot of times in medicine, there is this implicit bias and you have this idea in your head of who is a medical student who is a doctor and oftentimes if you really are honest those images do not include women those images do not include people of color so anytime that you see someone who may be a woman or a person of color you're automatically thinking they're any other role besides the physician whether that be a nurse or a patient transporter or part of the housekeeping staff Um, you are not assumed to be the physician and you are constantly working to prove yourself in that role and i also um that instance really kind of just bothered me as well because i was a student there trying to make a good impression on an audition rotation. And then it makes you question, am I doing something wrong? Am I not seeming like I am the medical student or the budding physician? Um, And I think that oftentimes minorities in medicine can be left with this kind of feeling of, and questioning, am I being hypersensitive? Is there something that I did wrong? And as you um, get more mature and and progress through your education, you realize, no, there's nothing that you did wrong. And you have to assert yourself as the physician and you have to address these things when they come up. Um, You really do. And I think that just being a woman in the field of medicine is difficult. And also being a a woman of color is very difficult just because of the implicit biases that occur. I have many more (laughs) examples if you want to hear more. But um, in general, these are kind
0: of common across the board. Yeah, I'm sure I've I've heard. You know all kinds of experiences as well from mm-hmm. from medical students, and I've heard the opposite experiences from my, my white male colleagues who were like, "Oh my gosh, I got mistaken as an attending today, and it was the best day." Oh, and, never. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, yeah. never, no, no. <laughs> Unfortunately, and
1: that's not to diminish anyone's role in medicine as well, um, but I think it's just to kind of highlight that, you know, women can be physicians. People of color can be physicians, black people can be physicians, and patients and colleagues need to recognize that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think I got into a little bit of trouble with this um, because I was trying to explain the the experience that a lot of women go through with being misidentified and Mm -hmm. that role that you get misidentified as is usually a nurse because it is a female-dominated field. Right. I think- Uh, someone explained the the best way to explain why that's disappointing to someone who's studying to become a physician is because it's a glass ceiling that is just so evident that, okay, this is the highest level of, you know, medical knowledge and medical time and training that you can achieve as a woman is being a nurse. So nothing wrong with being a nurse, obviously. And we appreciate all all of our nurses and ancillary staff as well, but it's just hard to see that glass ceiling so evident.
1: It is. It is. And it happens quite a bit. I mean, just from what tasks sometimes you are requested to do by colleagues or other uh, profession and patients, you know, they'll often ask for a urinal or something of that nature um, when you first go in and, and they don't realize that you are physician coming in to take their history. And obviously, you you do help put them on the bedpan or whatever you need to help the patient um, feel more comfortable and get the care they need. But I do sometimes wonder, I know antidotally, just from speaking to my male colleagues, that that does not happen nearly as much to them. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, I actually don't know if there is a study out there that kind of shows request for certain tasks based on your gender Um, so that would be something that's interesting hard to probably document though
0: sure yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. So I wanted to bring this up because I think professionalism is a hot topic in medicine right now. I mm-hmm. think 2020 is making us question a lot of our values as health- healthcare providers, and it's also causing us to destigmatize a lot of things like mental health. So that's, you know, more of the positive side of this year. Right. Um, but so I'm sure you've already heard about Med Bikini and the yes. um, professionalism issue that yes. has been, um, the highlight of medicine recently. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I wanted to know, what are your thoughts on how we should define professionalism in medicine today and what a physician's role is in the outside of the workplace?
1: So I think that's really hard with social media, right? Um, There is this, traditionally, professionalism has been thought of as Really, a suit and tie or a white coat, and having a very fine um, line between your personal life and your professional life. And I do think, um, to a certain extent, that that should be maintained in terms of the language that you use within the hospital. I don't believe you should speak to patients in the same way that you may speak to your best friend, especially if you use profanity. Um, that's just not really professional. Um, so there are different lines, uh, that probably should be maintained, but I think the issue, um, obviously med bikini, med bikini was a huge issue because it was a research store study that was poorly done. And actually, um, these male physicians were creating these fake accounts to kind of troll, if you will, and stalk their, um, per perspective call. Yeah. Their colleagues. So it was really, um, Just it's surprising that it was published. Um, But I do think that with social media, there has been this blurring of like, what is professional, what is not, especially because many of us in the healthcare field, we kind of use our social media in a dual role um, Mm -hmm. to educate patients and um, to educate, you know, prospective medical students on how to get into medicine. Um, but oftentimes we also use that account as a, per, a personal account as well. So it may say doctor this or doc that. Um, but sometimes the content is of you out with friends having a drink or something like that. Mm-hmm. So where does it cross that line? I think can be a little questionable. Um, but I think that oftentimes, uh, we as physicians are trying to use the social media to make us seem more relatable, to kind of break down this kind of patriarchal hierarchy that has existed in medicine. And I think it really does help because it makes patients feel like, okay, I can talk to this person or it makes, um, prospective medical students to see that, yes, you can maintain some type of normalcy of a life outside of medicine. I actually don't have patients on my social media. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't friend patients, um, but I do have a lot of uh, medical students, um, pre-med students who follow. And so I think that you have to be cognizant of who your audience is when you're posting anything. Um, but being a bi- in a bikini is not unprofessional, especially if it's on your personal social media account and what you do outside of the hospital. You want to make sure that it's nothing that puts your patients in danger. Yeah. Um, but I do think that that it was just really ludicrous how that was published.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. Mm-hmm. And an- another more ludicrous part of that study was that they classified speaking out on social issues like gun control and abortion access as unprofessional as well. Um, So that brings me to the question of what do you think a medical student's role is in advocating for social issues, especially during this time when I think it's starting to be looked at as our lane now. Right, Um, right. So I mean, what are some tips for being professional during this time and for advocating for social issues? Um, and just being involved and what's the right way to go about doing that?
1: Right. Well, I think that it's awesome that you want to be involved. Um, so kudos to that. I do think that you, before you post anything, you do need to realize that there's always going to be someone who doesn't like what you post, who does not agree, who does not think these social justice issues deserve time or attention. So you do have to be mindful of that. That does not mean that you shouldn't speak out or that you shouldn't post, but you should be prepared to deal with consequences of anything that you put into the public realm. So I think just making sure that you choose your words correctly. Um, again, you try not to use profanity. You try not to use any derogatory terms, um, and that you realize that everyone is kind of on a different place in the spectrum in terms of how much they feel comfortable advocating or speaking out against issues. And just because you may feel extremely compelled, which I do believe that everyone in the medical profession should be an advocate for changing these social uh, inequalities. However, you do have to respect if someone is not as outspoken as you are. And sometimes I think that we get into this kind of back and forth of feeling like you know other people are not doing enough and also just being mindful that just because someone doesn't post it on social media does not mean that they're not advocating in their own way whether that be lobbying or writing um letters to their uh congressional representatives or, or what have you yeah um I think that during this time, it's important for medical students and physicians to really kind of become advocates. And I think that um, you can do that in uh, three different ways. I do think that it's important also to know that some of these issues, obviously, these social inequities have been around for a long time and you're not going to become an expert overnight. You have to be willing to accept and admit what you don't know, and also keep an open mind in terms of learning more. Um, So I think really educating yourself on the issues. um, I think this takes learning some of the history in terms of civil rights and health disparities and inequities and kind of realizing that these were, Issues way before COVID, centuries before COVID, and COVID has just kind of um, propelled these health disparities into the limelight, right? So we know that um, minority patients are being hardest hit by the coronavirus pandemic in terms of incidence and mortality. Um, mm-hmm. The last data I read said that. Uh, Black um, patients actually had a 3.5 higher times mortality rate than white patients. Um, We know that there are a lot of um, like communities, marginalized communities, but mainly Latinx, um, American Indian, and Black communities are being kind of ravaged by this disease. So just being aware of that. um, The book that I mentioned earlier, Medical Apartheid, gives you kind of give you a little bit better understanding of where some of this historically comes from there's also was a really good review article in 2017 in the journal of maternal and child health and aids that was by singh et al and actually gave like a really good overview of health equity trends over the last seven decades so that kind of will give you like this bird's eye view of obviously history that goes back for centuries that you could basically start a whole new career in, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I also think that discovering your own biases can help you become an advocate at this time. Um, If you put into Google the Harvard project implicit, it will uh, give you this whole list of implicit association tests that you can take Um, I'd say if you have time, you know, if you have a free afternoon, just take a few of the tests. It kind of will give you some information on some biases that you may have that you didn't even realize. Again, these are implicit biases, meaning they're unconscious. So they're not even in the forefront of your mind, right? So I have biases like I really like the color pink, right? So anything Mm -hmm. pink, I'm probably going to choose first. Um, And other colors in terms of pens or anything will get chosen second but kind of uncovering some of your own basic um, uh, aversions to or biases towards something, right? And then there are many different frameworks out there for how to reduce bias. That's not really the focus of today, but there's a lot of different Mm -hmm. frameworks. There's a lot of different trainings. And then lastly, I think that medical students, pre-meds, physicians should be getting involved, right? Currently, the social climate is really ripe for all of these opportunities to address social injustices. Mm -hmm. Um, Many colleges, many medical schools are hosting different talks and putting together diversity and inclusion committees. So if you really wanna be an advocate, I think it's um, prudent to join one of these committees or to go to one of these lectures and to learn more, start to network with other physicians and. Students who have the same um, goals as you, and you can kind of start to uh, form that network.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think the implicit bias test—that's a great place to start for mm-hmm. sure. And then, obviously, getting involved with your like kind of local community with diversity exactly. inclusion work, and especially at your medical school, if you are involved in that kind of work, you can make a huge difference. And you can make a huge difference in what your class next year looks like if you get involved with. With things like that. So I love you that. You really
1: advice. can. And you can improve um, just the culture
0: of your institution. Yeah, absolutely. I love that advice. And thank you for breaking it down like that. I think that's mm-hmm. nice to nice to have that resource.
1: Yeah. Um, I always like actionable steps, right?
0: <laughs> me too. Me too. Yeah. I'm always posting action items. Right. <laughs> <I'm> like, let's <laughs> do something. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, so I wanted to switch gears just a little bit because I am interested in emergency medicine and I want to know a little bit more about what your life looks like outside of emergency medicine, yeah. outside of the hospital. What are you interested in, in life and do you have enough time for it and more? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think that whole term like
1: work life balance is really kind of a fallacy, right? Because work <laughs> is part of your life. So True. You have to learn how to fit it in. Um, I do think, so I'm a fourth year resident now. Um, My schedule has gotten easier as I've um, progressed through my residency education. So kind of what I'm saying now was probably very different than as an intern. Um, But I do think that emergency uh, emergency medicine does give you a good opportunity to still pursue your passions outside of medicine um just because of the way the work schedule is it's more so it is shift work right um so the length of your shift can vary from 12 hours to eight hours right um and how many shifts you work um a month also varies by if you're attending or if you're a resident um so that can vary a lot and um have an impact on how much you feel like you're spending how much time you're spending outside the hospital. But in general, we do spend more time outside the hospital than some other specialties. Um, And because we have a mix of day, mid and night shifts, you do have where, okay, if you just came off of a night shift, you may have the energy to go for a run after your shift. Mm -hmm. So Um, I do think that it's pretty ripe for maintaining your interest outside of medicine. So my hobbies pre-COVID are different (laughs) than my hobbies now, just from what's allowed. Um, Before this like global pandemic, right, (laughs) I enjoyed traveling quite a bit. Um, I tried to take like one international trip a year, uh, which was really fun. Um, The last place I went was actually Cuba, but that was a few years ago. Um beautiful place. I would definitely go back. But um I tried to travel. Um I also enjoyed spending time with family and friends. Um, just because I've kind of done training, well, undergrad, med school, um, now residency in different places. I have quite a few friends in different areas. So I tried to travel to visit them. Um and I also enjoyed like outdoor events, so outdoor concerts, outdoor Mm -hmm. festivals, really kind of was my thing. Um, Now, obviously, all of that is canceled as it should (laughs) be, because we should be social distancing and following all these um, guidelines in terms of reducing your risk of transmitting uh, COVID. But I still like to be very Connected to my family and friends and other areas. So I spent a lot of time on Zoom or FaceTime. Um, I've gotten, I used to like painting. So I've gotten kind of back into that, Mm -hmm. doing like something that I feel like is very maybe goofy, if you will, but adult coloring. There's like these adult coloring books that you can actually like color, and it actually is very relaxing to do because it's kind of using a different part of your brain. Mm -hmm. Um so those have kind of been like the things that I've been really getting into now. Also doing um going on light hikes. So I just was um just went to Maryland with one of my friends and uh we did a hike in Calvert Park. So very, very nice, relaxing. That's awesome. I'm now doing more outdoor activities with one person or by myself is kind of like the COVID activities now. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's good to hear. That's really nice to hear that you're getting outside and that you have what's what seems to be a great, like, well-rounded, balanced residency experience from what I can hear. <laughs> yes, I mean, obviously, there are times where I'm a little
1: less balanced. I'm a little bit more work-focused, depending on what. Uh, rotation I may be on at the time, but emergency medicine does give you time to kind of pursue your passions and your interests outside of your uh, outside of work, and it does allow you to form and keep up relationships outside of work.
0: Yeah, absolutely, that's good to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, so. One of the last questions that I like to ask any of my guests on here, because I do have the majority of my listeners are pre-med students and Uh med students early on in their journeys. So what advice do you have for the people listening today? So I think my biggest piece of
1: advice, just obviously with the times are to stay optimistic. I know for a lot of pre-meds, there has been many changes in how you apply to medical school, changes in- Um, with MCAT cancellations and things like that, but stay optimistic, stay dedicated to your goal, Um, don't let kind of the barriers that are put in place because of the, uh, because of COVID-19, don't let them kind of deter you from your goal. Um, I also think uh, pre-meds, this is a perfect time to get more involved and kind of educate yourself on these different social issues and issues of disparities and health equity and to really kind of take a deeper dive Um, just because a lot of classes now are online so you don't have that kind of time that you're spending um getting to campus or, or what have you. So we find that a, a, some people have a little bit more time um, right now. And I think that's perfect to kind of educate yourself on these issues, issues that you're going to encounter once you become a medical student and you enter the hospital, issues that you encounter obviously in society, but from a, a medical sp- perspective, uh, much more evident once you're in the hospital setting. Um, And I also think uh, this is a perfect time also to try to find mentors, right? I think a lot of people, especially uh, physicians, are much more open now to mentoring just because we do understand that there is limited access to clinical opportunities. You're not able to shadow in the way that you were uh, allowed to prior to the pandemic, right? So people are more willing to mentor and um, talk to you over the phone if you have any questions about any specialty. Um, for those listening, if anyone's interested in emergency medicine or medicine in general, I'm very open to speaking to you. Um, but just be kind of taking that first step and reaching out. And then, like I said, a lot of uh, physicians are on social media now, and that's a really easy way to. Kind of send them a DM message and just ask, hey, you know, I saw your social media and you're really uh, inspiring. You know, you think we could talk about kind of your career path or what have you. Um, also, a lot of organizations are doing these virtual opportunities where they will have panels or guest speakers um, kind of specialty focused, to talk about different issues so that um, med students who are not yet in their clinical years can kind of get uh, a pre-exposure to the different specialties without being actually able to go into the hospital. And obviously, these are things that pre-meds can attend as well. So I think keeping your eye out for those opportunities as
0: well. Yeah, those are great pieces of advice. I love getting involved in all of the panels and everything that's happening over Zoom now. Yes. Um, Because I can just be like, you know, doing my laundry or something and have something on and be learning something. So Exactly. Exactly. All the wonderful podcasts. It's really, there's so
1: much out there. Um, It's hard to consume it all, but um, try to, you know, find a few things that you like and try to educate yourself.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that advice. I love that. Oh, of course, of course. So with that last question, I think we'll go ahead and wrap up this episode. But thank you so much, Dr. Smith, Kristen, for being here.
1: (laughs) Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, Student Dr. Joshi, I really have appreciated (laughs) being on your podcast. Uh, We were talking before this episode, I was just saying how Amazing it is that uh, you're able to keep up your podcast um, with your obviously hectic schedule as a medical student. So kudos to you. Also, you're allowing um, us to talk about really timely and difficult topics. So thank you for giving me the space to do that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure the listeners will give us a f- like feedback and everything, and I'm sure it'll mm-hmm. be positive and everyone will like this episode for sure. <laughs> great, great. Looking forward to it. And quick question. Do you want me to leave your Instagram um, handle or Twitter handle in the bio? Yes, yes, please do. So I use Instagram way more than I use Twitter.
1: Um, my Instagram handle is Doctor. Smith. My Twitter is Dr. KJ Smith One, I believe. Okay. I, believe. okay. I, I I post probably on Instagram way more just um, for ease. But
0: Awesome. I'll go ahead yeah. and leave those in the show notes. So if people want to reach out to you or DM you about this episode, they can reach
1: great. out. Great. Great. Okay. And feel free to do so. Yes. Anyone listening.
0: <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much and have a Thank great day. Thank you. You too. okay isn't she just the sweetest she brings like the best energy and i really enjoyed getting to sit down with her so before you guys sign off make sure you follow dr smith as well as follow me and the rest of the podcast team and the podcast instagram page every detail that we've talked about will be in the show notes as well as review us on apple Podcasts. that really helps us get to the top of any lists and uh it would be really cool to be one of the top you know lifestyle or lifestyle medicine podcasts and i would love that so much so do all of the things i will see you guys next time and thank you so much for making this podcast a part of your day wherever you are